Two weeks ago, we began looking at what is contained in chapter 30 of the Confession of Faith under the subject of discipleship. Chapter 30 of our Confession has the ominous title of church censures. Church discipline, something no one wants to talk about. And that's why I began by talking about discipleship, because discipleship has that word discipline built right into it. Disciples are those who are being discipled or disciplined or taught. Now, I'm going to begin, before I read, with giving you a challenge. Because when we don't like this idea of church discipline, it's a biblical concept. <laughs> we find it throughout the scriptures. But I'm going to challenge you this week to find it in the Gospels. Now, I don't expect you to read all four of the Gospels this week. It would be great if you did. But, you know, if you read about five chapters a day, you can make it through every one of the Gospels. Well, anyone, anyone, not, except John. You can, get, you can get through because they're all less than 30 chapters. So you can even take the day off and read five chapters from Monday to Saturday, and you'll get through an entire Gospel. Imagine that. And if you, if you want the easy one... I'll give you a hint. Mark's the shortest, 16 chapters. You know, barely have to read three a day. And you, can, and you can see, as you read the whole thing, as a, as a total, you'll see how Jesus disciples those men he has designated as apostles. And the way that he interacts with them, and the way that he teaches them, and yes, even the way he has to correct their faulty thinking at times. No one likes correction. You've probably seen already in the bulletin that this sermon is entitled Not Above Correction. And that is a descriptor of every single human being. There's not one of us who is above correction. And so with that in mind, let's turn in our Bibles or reading upon the, the screen. Second Samuel, beginning in chapter 11 and then following through into chapter 12. This is the word of God. It is the word of truth and the word of life. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb that he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing because he had no pity. 
Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall not never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because you did this, by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. There ends our reading of God's word. Let us look to him for his blessing upon it. Father in heaven, Some words that proceed from your mouth are harder for us to receive than others. It's hard for us to want to put into practice real scrupulous self-examination and conviction of our own sins. And it's even harder when those sins are brought to us by another. Lord, we thank you for the example of grace in the life of David that he recognized his sin and he turned from it. And we pray that same grace would be bestowed on each and every one of us, that we would see ourselves as we truly are, and that when our sin is pointed out, we would not make excuses, try to shift the blame, but we would own up to the reality of our transgressions and look to Christ who bore them in his own body on the tree and poured out his blood for our cleansing. We pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly, more beautifully this morning as we consider his great-great-great-grandfather David and his sin, but also his faith and his repentance. So grant us your spirit, O Lord, lead us in the truth. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I think the story of David and Bathsheba is quite well known. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. We know the story, I think. We don't need to analyze it. A lot of <laughs> a lot of pages have been written analyzing it, trying to figure out how long it took and who's at fault and, and so on and so forth. The upshot of it is David was filled with lust For another man's wife, he committed adultery with her. 
And when she became pregnant, in order to hide his sin, he first tried to entice the husband into thinking it was his child. And when he couldn't do that, he killed him. David knew full well what he had done wrong. He had broken two very important commandments. The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. David did both those things. And then he lived with himself for quite a while. And again, we could speculate about David's psychology and how he was going through all this and what was happening with him, but that's not the point either. I want to stick to the facts of the text that is before us. David committed adultery, he committed murder, and then he took the woman Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah the Hittite, whom he had had murdered. He brings her to his own house and takes her as his wife. And we have this, you know, we're not left wondering, well, was this the right thing to do? You know, she's a widow and David's taking care of her. No, we're, we're not. We're, there's, no, there's no room for any speculation here. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God is displeased with all sin. He is particularly displeased with the sins of his people. Not all sins are alike, and not all sins are equally heinous in the eyes of God or grievous. There are different reasons why some are more and some are less, depending on the type of sin it is. You know, it's, it's one thing to rob a bank, it's another thing to take home the paper clips from the office at work. Both are theft, but one will land you in prison, and one might get you fired, probably reprimanded at first, but it's not the same. We need to recognize that. We need to recognize that sin is, is not all, although it's categorically the same, it's sin, and there's no sin so small that it's not an offense against God and deserves death. And there's no sin so great that it isn't an offense against, or it's too great an offense of God against God to be forgiven if it is truly repented of. And so let's bear that in mind. David has done something displeasing to the Lord, and it's displeasing because he's David. He's the king. And you might think, well, you know, I'm the king. I'm and if anybody had, a, had an opportunity or, or a, an excuse for believing in the divine right of kings, wasn't it David? I mean, he'd been anointed by God uh, through Samuel. He'd been told that his dynasty, his, his children, his children's children, his son would always sit upon the throne. David had a confirmation of his kingship from God himself. And he might say, well, you know, he might, he might be able to think, well, who can, who can correct me? A few months ago now, I guess, <coughs> as we looked at a companion doctrine to the doctrine of church discipline, that is the question of the civil magistrate. I told you one of my favorite moments from Presbyterian history, Andrew Melville's confrontation of James VI when he proclaimed to him that he was but God's silly vassal, that he wasn't, he wasn't the king of the church, that Jesus Christ is the king. And that delineation between the, the state and the church goes back to the beginning. 
Even in Israel, there's a, a distinction to be made between the church and the state. David is the head of state. He's not the head of the church. Just as Andrew Melville confronted King James when he tried to usurp the position of the church and take a place in it, so God rebukes kings in Israel who do likewise. So we've been looking at Isaiah. You remember that in the year that Uzziah died, Isaiah is commissioned. He has that vision of God in his temple. If you remember the story of Uzziah, Uzziah had lived for many years as a leper, not part of the congregation, not in his own palace, because he had dared to try to take on the role of a priest and burn incense to God. And God had chastised him, and the priests had spoken out against him. Now you might say, well, David doesn't have that example before him. But David does have an example before him, doesn't he? Because in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel has to stand up against Saul. For Saul has also taken on the, the priestly duty of offering a sacrifice. And remember, he's got that great excuse. Well, I didn't know if you were coming, Samuel. I, and, the, and the people were getting ready to leave. And, you know, they were, all, they, were, they, they were all there gathered for the worship service. And, you know, you weren't there to lead it. So I, I just had to do it. Samuel has to give him an even more stinging rebuke and tell him that he's been rejected as king because he's rejected God. And that God cares more for obedience than he does for sacrifice. That's a lesson we can all learn. God wants obedience, but because of our disobedience, he's provided a sacrifice. And he calls us to honor that sacrifice by our repentance. I don't think that what we have set before us, this, this narrative of the encounter between Nathan and David, is something that Nathan stayed up late one night dreaming up. This is my conviction. I'm not willing to die for it, but I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty strong about it. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. When God sends his messengers to do something, he tells them what to do and how to do it. Now, Nathan didn't have to sit around wringing his hands and going, okay, it's the king. <laughs> how am I going to bring this message to him? What will happen to me? I think this parable, this, this story that he's given is divinely inspired. God gives it to Nathan, fully formed. And Nathan is simply to deliver the message. And so he goes to David and he tells him this heart-rending story. And I mean, even now, aren't you incensed by the, the cruelty of this man who has everything and would, would dare to rob a poor man because he's so greedy and heartless? He's got everything and this guy has nothing? It's so easy to see sin in other people's lives, isn't it? Isn't, isn't it so easy just to, to, you know, you can just zoom right in on it and you can see it there and you can address it and you know exactly how it should be dealt with. And so is David. It's interesting, his, his angry outburst. The man who did this deserves to die. But then he doesn't, he doesn't call for his death. He, he calls for the judicial law to be enacted, and that is that he will pay back fourfold. If you stole an ox, you had to give back five. If you stole a sheep, you had to give back four. That was the rules. 
That was the Levitical law, divinely appointed. And so David, although he says he deserves death, he, he upholds the law very strictly. He will pay back fourfold because he did this thing and didn't have pity. You know, there are a number of Bible scenes. I just, I, I'd like to be a fly on the wall and observe. This is, this is one of them. I would, I, would, I would really have liked to have seen this, this played out. I mean, it really happened. This isn't, this isn't given to us, you know, as a, as a parable, a fable of something that might have happened. This actually happened. Here is David, the king. And along comes this man, Nathan. And they've already had dealings with each other. And, and there's a relationship there between them. Nathan has had to backtrack. First he told David to go and build the temple, and then when God corrects him, he goes back and says, no, you're not going to build the temple. You're not going to build the house for God. God's going to build the house for you, David. They've, they've had this, this intimate spiritual connection that's going on. And now Nathan comes with this story and tells it to David, and, and David's emotions are stirred. He's angry. I think we could go so far to say it's a righteous anger. He's rightly angry at the sin that has been committed. But he doesn't see that the sin that's been committed is his own sin. Until Nathan says to him, you are the man. And that's the part I would, I would, like, to have, I would like to have heard the tone of his voice. I would like to have seen the look on his face and the look on David's face. And we can speculate about it. But what we have here are the details, enough details, enough information. God's told us what we need to know. David doesn't immediately begin to backpedal and backtrack and say, well, maybe it wasn't such a bad thing after all. I mean, you know, maybe he had a good reason for doing it. He, does, he doesn't make any excuses at all, does he? When Nathan says, you're the man, you've sinned. And he gives him this long explanation, you know, how God has given him everything and, and, and the judgment that's to come upon him for his sin. Oh, we don't like that today. I mean, we don't like to talk about sin very much at all. We don't like to talk about church discipline. We don't like to talk about being corrected. But God, through Nathan, lays it out plainly. No holds barred, nothing kept back. David, you despised me. You broke my commandments. And you're going to be punished. And David doesn't again begin to make excuses and, and ask for a leniency or mercy. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you know, I couldn't help myself. I'm just a man. And I, and I, you know, he's, he doesn't do any of that. Chapter 12, verse 13, very startling. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. We have more detail of this recounted for us in Psalm 51, don't we? David's great hymn of repentance, where he acknowledges before, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And I know some of us are left thinking, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? Aren't they victims? They are. To be sure, they're victims. But we need to see our sin as ultimately against God. 
because it's only in light of seeing our sins as an offense against a holy God that we begin to understand how we have truly offended other people. How we have sinned against them. You know, there are a lot of people who are sensitive about offending others, but give no sense or thought to the idea of an offense against God. But as Christians, as believers, our first thought should be that we have offended the living God. And that we've done that by means of sinning against other people. And when they come to us and point out our sin, even if they aren't as eloquent and diplomatic as Nathan is, we still need to hear them. We still need to hear and say, is this true or not? Now, granted, David's at an advantage here. He knows Nathan is a prophet of God. I mean, he knows that. There's no, there's no question in his mind. He knows that Nathan has come to him with a message from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. This isn't Nathan's opinion. Now, sometimes people will come to us with their opinions of what well, they think we've sinned, you know? Um, you know, if we've, if we've worn white after Labor Day or something like that, you know, they say, oh, they're, they're offended by that, you know? And, and they come and they say, well, you've, you've done this or that. And we have to say, okay, you know, I understand you're, you're offended, but let's talk about offenses in terms of biblical categories. And even where it's an offense like that, Paul tells us that our love for Christ and our love for our brethren is to moderate our behavior. So he says, if, if my eating meat offends my brother, I'll never eat meat again. We need to have more of that mindset, more of that willingness to set aside our rights for the rights of others. But also, we have the necessity of coming to others with a loving confrontation of sin. One prominent American pastor had this to say. He said, what good is it if we get up in the pulpit and we preach against adultery? Well, known adulterers sit unchastened in our congregations. What good is it? It makes a mockery of the preaching of God's word. If we say, well, you shall not commit adultery, but then, you know, there are people in the congregation, and, and this has frequently been a, been a problem in Christian churches where people will go so far as to say, well, you know, I don't love my spouse anymore. I, I love this other person, and God is love, and he wants me to be happy, so he's told me it's okay. There, there are people that actually say that. That, that will argue that God countenances their sin because it's what they want. Now, that's an extreme case. We love extreme cases. They're easier to spot, aren't they? You know, it's, it's so easy to, to spot the extreme case, except when it's our extreme case, which is why Jesus said, why are you worried about the speck in your brother's eye? Why are you worried about that little, little bit of sawdust when you have got this beam in your own eye? You've got this huge chunk of lumber sticking out of your own face, and all you can see is the, the little tiny bit that may be slightly obscuring your neighbor's vision. 
where you are completely blind. You know, Jay Adams in his more poetic elegance than I am says he's, he's, he pictures in his mind somebody with a, like a, a, a great you know, beam sticking out of their eye and, and they're trying to point out to him, well, you've got this beam around there, shaking their head and going, what do you mean, what do you mean? And while they're swinging their head around, they're smashing everything with this big piece of wood that's sticking out of their head and they don't see it. You know, that's, that is our ability when we don't see our own sin. We, we cover it up we, and we do more damage. We just go blundering about because someone else's tiny sins look much bigger than our own. Now, we aren't being told here that we should go after everyone every time, you know, somebody, somebody you know, steps out, out, out of line, the, the least infraction, we come down on them. We're not to have a spirit of censure. You know? Again, that word is, that word is, not one we like. We, we talk about church censures, church discipline. But we're not to have a spirit where this is what we want to do. I, I know that you as parents don't, don't do this. And, and maybe your children think you do. You know, I, I, I kind of remember thinking of this a little bit as a child. My parents were just watching me so that when I stepped out of line, they could clobber me. You know? <laughs> and I thought, well, just wait till I grow up. I'm going to have my own kids and I'm going to do that to them. <laughs> You know, it seems fair. Um, it, it seems like that's, sometimes we have that attitude. All we're, all we're doing is, is looking for people to step out of line so that we can correct them. And that's not the mentality behind church discipline and confrontation of sin. Our confession puts it this way. And we're going to look more at this as, as the weeks go by, but let me give you a preview. Paragraph 3. Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of offending brethren, from deterring of others from like offenses, for purging out the leaven which might infect the whole lump, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. And it goes on. Let me put that in modern English. Church discipline is necessary that it brings back the straying sheep. And that's what David is. Though he's the shepherd of Israel, he is a straying sheep. He's wandered into grievous sin, adultery, and murder. And Nathan has come to him to reclaim him, to restore him, to bring him back. But also it's to defer others. I'm sorry, deter others. It's to stop others. Others, we're not to look and say, well, look, the, look what the king does. <laughs> you know, he sleeps with whoever he wants. He gets rid of whoever he wants. If the king can do it, I mean, it must be okay. No. We want to deter others from similar sins. We want to purge the leaven. That is, we want to, we want to purify the church. The purity of the church should, should be a, a great desire we have that we become more and more holy. And then we want to vindicate the honor of Christ. That is, we want, we want Christ, who is the head of the church, to appear holy and glorious. We want him to be honored. Again and again, Nathan says to David, you despise the Lord. When we sin and we do not repent, that's what we're doing. We're despising the Lord. This we must not do. The Bible 
tells us about church discipline. Our confession tells us about church discipline. Our book of church order contains the book of discipline. And I think that frightens a lot of non-Presbyterians. <laughs> what? You have a book of discipline? What's, what's that all about? Well, it begins by describing that discipline is the authority with which Jesus Christ has given the visible church to preserve its purity, peace, and good order. And then it says, the purpose of judicial discipline is to vindicate the honor of Christ, to promote the purity of his church, and to reclaim the offender. It's interesting, isn't it? They, the, the, the framers of our church order, our book of discipline, reverse the order. Well, the confession says it's concerned with reclaiming the offender and ends with the, the vindication of the honor of Christ. Our book of discipline says the purpose of church discipline is to vindicate the honor of Christ, to promote the purity of the church, and to reclaim the offender. And I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because in practical reality that's often what happens. All too often, all too often, church discipline fails to provide repentance. And that's because church discipline can't make people penitent. It can't bring repentance. Only God can do it. And that's why when we come to passages like this in the Word of God, we need to take them seriously and study them and, and meditate upon them and, and see ourselves in both roles. You want to cast yourself as Nathan all the time or as David all the time? No. It's not one or the other. It's about David was a sinner and a saint. Nathan was a saint and a sinner. All God's people are saints and sinners. All the elect. We have the remaining sin, the old man, the flesh, the fallen nature within us. And sometimes we don't see it rear its ugly head, but others do. And when they come to us, and they say to us, and even if they don't do it in as nice a manner as we would like, and they point out to us that we have fallen short of the glory of God, instead of getting angry with them for pointing out our sin. Shouldn't we look to God for mercy in Christ and realize that, yes, it was my sin that nailed him to the cross and kept him there until it was accomplished? And I will boast in nothing but in the cross of Christ alone. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, you shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, the son that is born to you shall die. Because you utterly despised the Lord. And then Nathan went to his house. I know I stopped in the middle of the verse there. But in my Bible, the paragraph break is there. As you know, sometimes the divisions of chapter and verse aren't always as helpful as they could be. That's why we began reading in verse, uh, ver verse at, uh, chapter 11, verse 26, and we read through chapter 12 
to the beginning of verse 15. Nathan went away after David repented. Sometimes we have to go away before the person repents. And I think it's important for us to remember that. There's a time to speak, and there's a time to stop speaking. There's a time to go and visit someone and lovingly confront them. And then there's a time to say, I'm going home now. I'm going to go mind my own business. We're not to be busybodies, but we're not to turn a blind eye to sin. As Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, avoid such people. Now he may have had in mind simply those in the world, but he may also have been thinking of some nominal members of the church. What we need to avoid most of all is sin. We need to avoid living for our own pleasure and delight rather than for God's revealed will. May God give us grace that as he reveals his will to us by his word and by his spirit, even if his word comes to us from the lips of infants, as Psalm 8 says, let us receive it as God's word and cherish it in our hearts. Father in heaven, we thank you again that you are the God who speaks, that you are not silent. You don't leave us to try and work things out in our, our best thoughts and abilities, Father, for we would fall short, far short of your glory. But your glorious wisdom is to be praised, and you are to be worshipped, and you are to be served with joy and gladness all our days. And so we pray, give us tender, humble hearts to receive correction and to be transformed by your grace for the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.